Good afternoon. My name is Deborah Blanks, and it is my honor to welcome you to the Princeton University annual observance of the life, labor, and legacy of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. The MLK Planning Committee works conscientiously every year to make this program an amazing success. Please join me in thanking the chair, Lauren Robinson Brown, and members of the committee for bringing us to this day. We have been privileged to have the Jazz Tech create an atmosphere with stirring rhythms and beats that have caused our very beings to ascend. We wish to thank you for your contribution. On this day throughout our nation, many people of goodwill gather or serve in some way to pay homage to a man who was a great American and sought by his life and example to challenge America to live out the ideals that our country was founded upon. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness for all people without regard to race, creed, or color was the clarion call of Martin Luther King, Jr. He was a modern-day prophet who cried loud and long and spared not words that challenged those with an ear to hear to flesh out the dream for equality, justice, and freedom for people everywhere. We have gathered in this auditorium on this day because the journey continues and is circuitous. But most importantly, the mantle has been passed to us to flesh out the dream in our own lives, to transform our world, and allow that transformation to begin first in us. Welcome. I am privileged at this time to present one whose vision of a university community that honors the humanity of all of its members is the priority every day. Please join me in welcoming the 19th President of Princeton University, President Shirley M. Tillman. Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you all for joining us today. I would like to extend a very special welcome to our two speakers, Dr. Marveline Hughes, the president of Dillard University, and Dr. Charles Adams, pastor of Hartford Memorial Baptist Church, and to all who entered our poster, essay, and video contests. Today is really about you. Finally, I would like to acknowledge the presence of the many public officials who have joined us today in this wonderful partnership between Princeton University and the surrounding community. We're delighted that you were able to join us again this year. Today, we honor Martin Luther King, Jr a man who had the courage to bring Americans of every race and creed together in a quest for true equality. In 1963, on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C., he urged his fellow citizens to embrace a dream in which African Americans would not be judged 
by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. In the segregated South and in the racially divided North of the 50s and the 60s, this was a risky message. But Dr. King did not falter, despite the legal sanctions, the public abuse, and the physical violence that he and his colleagues suffered. As all of you know, his life was cut short by an assassin's bullet. But to the end, Dr. King was an exponent of nonviolence. One of his movement's greatest achievements and an instrument of peaceful change was the Voting Rights Act of 1965, which inspired the theme of this year's poster, essay, and video contests. As your outstanding entries demonstrate, there is nothing more precious in a democracy than the power to exercise one's vote. While the worst abuses of the past have been addressed, this fundamental right and the freedom that it symbolizes should never be taken for granted. It is not enough for voters to cast their ballots. They must also ensure that every citizen has the knowledge, the protections, and confidence needed to do the same. Education plays a crucial role in this process, and nowhere is this educational obligation taken more seriously than in our nation's historically black colleges and universities. Today, we are joined by the president of one of those institutions, Marveline Hughes of Dillard University in New Orleans. Dillard has a long and distinguished record of service to the African-American community in Louisiana and beyond. And Dr. Hughes, herself an, an alumna of a historically black university, is deeply committed to sustaining and enriching this tradition. Dr. Hughes, who earned her PhD in counseling and administration from Florida State University, is no stranger to university governance, having served in senior positions at five institutions before assuming her post at Dillard. I think I can safely say, however, that nothing she encountered in the course of her career prepared her for the disaster that befell the city of New Orleans on August the 29th, less than two months after her arrival. Hurricane Katrina took a terrible toll on Dillard, submerging its campus, sparking devastating fires, and scattering its students, faculty, and staff across the country. Yet Dr. Hughes and her colleagues have not despaired on the contrary, they are determined, as she puts it, to undertake what seems impossible. This month, Dillard did the impossible when it reopened its doors in temporary quarters in New Orleans. In doing so, it has kept faith with its students, its history, and the great city it calls its home. Last September, as many of you know, Princeton and Brown University made a public commitment to help Dillard rebuild itself. And I am pleased to say that our support is making this Herculean task just a little bit easier. Our support has taken many forms, from technical assistance to material resources, 
and we stand ready to do more in the months and the years ahead. Together, we shall overcome the legacy of Hurricane Katrina. But it is Dillard's president, faculty, staff, and students who will lead the way. Please join me in extending the warmest of Tiger welcomes to Marveline Hughes. I congratulate you for taking the time out of your studies, uh, whatever your activities were today, to be here. And I thank you for inviting me to join you. I want to begin by sharing with you sometimes what happens when we discover that our lives are turned upside down and we don't know which way to turn or which step to take because the challenges can seem overwhelming. And so to do that first, I will walk you through a brief presentation about Dillard University. And then I want to come back and interfold those with comments that connect what we are trying to do now and how the life and legacy of Martin Luther King, Jr., and those like him have been of assistance to us. What you see behind you is a map of Dillard University featuring the nature of damage, with the yellow meaning that it is considered minor, although none of it is minor, as you will see as we walk through this. The pink meaning major damage and the blue meaning extensive. The extensive that you should be aware of include three buildings that burned down, which happened to be three residence halls and some of the other facilities that will have to be removed. But just to bring you up to speed on what this was like for me as a person as I remember it. First of all, I joined Dillard University on July 1, where I decided I wanted to give this part of my life to leadership in the historically black university, which is Dillard. Before that, I was at California State University Stanislaw as president for 11 years, and it was fascinating to me that I wanted to give that up. I wanted to give up that comfort zone for some reason which was perplexing for me. But I went to Dillard, and now I know what I went to do. Would I go had I known that this was going to happen? The answer is yes. It is yes because I think it is why I went there and it is what my charge in life is about at this time. So after evacuating my students, closing down the campus to faculty and staff, 
asking faculty to protect its research, I thought I would find a comfortable place. And I did. I found my sister's home, only to discover that as we went to bed, I was awakened because one of the many buses we had chartered to take our students to sacred grounds had melted down. None of our students were lost. None of our faculty were lost. So we are very, very fortunate. But I did decide that I would take a full day to travel to be with them because of what they had incurred. Well, then, when Katrina broke and I was awakened that August 29th morning, I, like you, watched all of the television disasters and fiascos and wondered if any of my friends or any of my family, any of my students were a part of that. It never occurred to me that my university would be submerged in water because they were not featured. But then I did request an aerial view. I requested two things, actually, an aerial view and security for the university, and I received both. If you can imagine yourself wondering what is happening to Princeton University in a similar situation and having this view come back to you, this is what I received, the view of a university underwater. Now what we have been engaged in is a full process of deciding how to recover because as you can see, every one of the lovely white buildings which characterized Dillard University was underwater. All but one. All but one. And it was just across from the administration building which had its entire floor flooded. The basement and a part of the first floor. Across from that building was the chapel. The chapel did not sustain anything but a little wind and rain damage. All of the other buildings on campus had at least the first floors covered with water. So for us, there has been a process of uh, remediating, which means uh, deciding what buildings has to be dried out first, dehumidified, uh, mucked out, what needs to be pulled out of the walls. And what you see now is the process of what happened there. Our buildings now have, for the most part, been remediated, meaning that we are now ready to go into a planning for reconstruction and replanning Dillard University. It is a beautiful university, but still the devastation for Dillard was more serious than the devastation for any other university. We are the only university that has been unable to return to our home site in January. You will see there more of the process of removing material. Our students who lived on the first floor of those residence halls 
and those students who lived in the residential facilities, the three that burned down, lost everything. And so we are in a process of trying to collect insurance, assist them, and find ways to enable them to continue their education. So repairs and restoration are now underway. And somebody always puts this one in because when I went back there the first time, probably a couple of weeks or so afterward when I had to be escorted in because it was not permissible, but I had to see what was happening on campus. And the first thing I said after I got over the shock of the destruction and devastation was that there's no life around here. They said, I said, we don't even have any ducks around here anymore. And that was true. But now we have more ducks than we want to have. <laughs> but that was one of the sacred grounds of Dillard University. What you see now at the top is the typical Dillard University building. That is the administration building, but others look like that. And you see here other buildings that are Dillard University, the greenery that was there. And now, none of that is anymore. So what I'm now in the process of doing after returning our students to New Orleans and encouraging them to matriculate at other universities for the first semester is assuring that they receive the quality education, the continuity that is so important in their education, and now preparing to rebuild Dillard University. Now imagine this. All of us are sharing the same space. President, administration, faculty, staff, and students are in the Hilton Hotel. And one reporter called that the upscale opportunities that are being given to Dillard University, to which I replied, my students deserve anything that would be healing for them in this time. All of us deserve that. That is where we are. But I want to just say to President Tillman that I cannot rise today without thanking you and thanking Dr. Ruth Simmons, Brown University and Princeton University for more than shallow condolences or extensions of goodwill. But I want to thank you for a plan that has sustained us. It is a plan that all of us are aware of at Dillard. It is a plan that our Board of Trustees is aware of. And I think most of the people on my campus now know at least two or three names at Princeton and they haven't met them. Uh, Karen, you are very popular on our campus. <laughs> and so is Lauren. What I'm really aware of is that had it not been for that, we would not have been able to secure the connectivity that we have been able to secure. We were scattered all over the place, and you have lifted us out. The collegiality of the universities has been enormous. 
You have given us resources. You have offices on your campus, known by others on my campus as offices that are available to access all resources. And sometimes I think we do too much. But importantly, I have felt at times a need to talk with someone other than everybody who is in this situation with me where the pain is so real and the helplessness seems real as well. And so be aware that what you do, in addition to all of that, is that you give me hope and support. And usually when I call, it's because my spirit is really fading, fading at the pace of progress because um, it is so difficult in New Orleans at this time to get the kind of organized support that we need in order to move on. Well, Katrina was very, very devastating for us. But what is so real is that these two campuses have done something that I hope the uh, higher education communities all over will think about because the connection that I see with today's event, particularly the Martin Luther King event, was stated by him in one, his, one of his famous oratorical presentations. He said, the measure of a man, and I add woman, is not where he or she stands in moments of comfort and convenience, but where he or she stands at times of challenge and at times of controversy. And so, as we move to celebrate him, I want to celebrate those people who made special decisions for us, even the supporters of Princeton and Brown, one of whom, just before the Christmas holiday, uh, sent a major, major scholarship which enabled me to give 100 students $5,000 each, which is a lot for some of my students, and 100 students $2,500 each. And so on the occasion where we are celebrating Martin Luther King's birthday, let's begin to think of more than the I have a dream speech. Although everywhere around the country today, I'm sure there are celebrations of I have a dream speech. But if we relegate our understanding of the complexity of what he did and the magnitude of what he did to the I have a dream speech, then we don't understand the massiveness of the ideology, the accomplishments of the person, and how the world changed. I think, for example, of David Garrow's Bearing the Cross, a book of 750 pages, of James E. Washington's Essential Writing and Speeches, a book of Testament, 680 pages, Taylor Branch's book, including 
parting the waters and pillars of fire. And yes, Coretta Scott King's book of short essays, the words of Martin Luther King. If we haven't read all those, then we will continue to relegate what he did to the I Have a Dream speech. He did so much more. In addition to the I Have a Dream speech, we must think about the lifelong legacy that he left for us and the standards of leadership that he gave to us. I think of them often, and I think of how important they are to uplift me and to keep me going. But let's not minimize who he was. This is the first celebration of the holiday since the death of the quiet seamstress, Rosa Parks. But I challenge you again to think about how much you actually know about her. And my fear is that she is minimized in the value of what she did. Did you know, for example, that Rosa Parks was the first woman to be admitted a member to the NAACP in Montgomery? Did you know that she was a trained civil rights activist? Did you know that by the time she finally was discovered, she had been identified as a troublemaker, a troublemaker who put her money on the front of the bus where the machine was, was forced to walk back. She did that over and over. And very often, drivers waited until she headed to the back and pulled off. She wasn't just an innocent seamstress who refused to stand up. She was an active civil rights person, and she paved the way for why we are here today. Knowing our history can be powerful. Knowing what Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King endured as a leader, and knowing the leadership attention and the characteristics that he had to portray in order to persist and persevere, and knowing that there was nothing he would do short of assuring that we were all freed worldwide. This is not just a national day. It should be an international day. But all of that motivates me. It motivates me to study the leadership of a man who was determined because I have had to dig deep into my body, into my soul, to find that determination when nothing else was there. I have had to say to naysayers all around the country, Dillard University is not gone. Dillard University will survive. Dillard University is on its way back. And not only that, in the final analysis, it will be back and better.
And so I say to you today that the 137 years of educational excellence represented by Dillard University that has produced so many outstanding alumni and alumni who are leaders in this country and in the world. And I would have to say to you that, of course, my friend, President of Brown University, Ruth Simmons, is one of our prized products. And so it's very clear to me that I could not walk away and let a legacy that important die. I could not walk away because it, it was never supposed to die. And so I'm convinced that I was put there to keep this legacy going. New Orleans is a battered place now, as you well know. But just as the drivers at the boycott that lasted for 381 days in Montgomery were able to take an average of 20,000 people a day to their workplaces with their pri private transportation. Certainly, I say to myself, if they could do that, and if Martin Luther King could give his life, the least I can do is give the best I have to the future generation of learners at Dillard University. And so with all the strength I can find and with all the resolve there is, I want to inspire my students. I want to inspire those of you who are students and those of you who are not students because it is important that we lead with determination, that we not feel defeated when everything seems to be going wrong, that we draw down as deeply as we can within our souls and ourselves to keep the dream alive. I pledge to you that we will rebuild. I pledge to you that we will continue to honor Martin Luther King's dream and the foundation he laid for us. And I pledge to you my commitment with the kind of foundation you are providing us to making Dillard alive again, not in the Hilton Hotel, but on its home campus. Thank you for inviting me. President Hughes, thank you so much for that address that I think inspires all of us uh, to, uh, to do better in our own lives uh, in meeting the dream of uh, Martin Luther King. And, uh, and thank you so much for giving us a sense of uh, your inspired leadership at Dillard University. We are all rooting for you. 
We want uh, just to leave you with a small token of our thanks for your willingness to come and join us today in this important celebration. There are many ways to honor Dr. King, but one of the best is to recognize the men and women in our own communities who exemplify his spirit. At Princeton, we do this through the Martin Luther King Day Journey Award, which was first presented last year. Our honoree this year is Albert Rabito, the Henry W. Putnam Professor of Religion and one of our nation's foremost authorities on African-American religious history. His book, Slave Religion, The Invisible Institution in the Antebellum South, has become a classic in its field. And through this work and others, he has given generations of African-Americans a voice that must be heard if our nation's future is to be as inclusive uh, more inclusive than its past. In his role as a teacher and as an administrator, Professor Rabito has also helped to make the historically invisible members of American society as visible as possible, reminding us, and here I use his own words, that higher education needs the excluded and the underrepresented for the perspectives, diversity, and insight they will bring to the dialogue that is education. As a child of the segregated South, he has seen the harm that the absence of this dialogue can do. Three months before his birth in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi, his father was killed in a racial incident and the perpetrator was never prosecuted. In his moving autobiography, A Sorrowful Joy, he describes being hounded from a beach because of the color of his skin. But like Dr. King, he has not allowed the prejudice of some to compromise his faith in the common humanity of us all. As dean of our graduate school, he actively promoted the recruitment and admission of minorities. And as a member of our faculty since 1982 and chair of the Department of Religion, he has fostered a climate in which African-American scholars and scholarships can flourish. As Professor of Religion Cornell West put it, he is the godfather to us all. I think he meant that in the most positive sense. <laughs> Indeed, Professor Rabito is a source of inspiration for all who wish to build the kind of society that Dr. King envisioned a society in which the life of the mind and spirit propel us toward each other rather than apart, where suffering, if it must occur, is redemptive rather than destructive. This most humane of men has enriched the life of our university community for nearly one quarter of a century, and it gives me the greatest of pleasure to invite him to accept the Martin Luther King Day Journey Award for lifetime service. Al.
Thank you, President Tillman. I'm Lauren Robinson-Brown, the MLK Committee Convener and Director of Communications for the University. We have just honored President Hughes and Professor Rabiteau, both of whom live lives in service to others, as did Dr. King. It is our hope that these magnificent examples will inspire you and others on our campus to actively join the continuing journey to fully realize and embrace human dignity in America and elsewhere. As we turn to our student contests, we also can be inspired by the tenacity and dedication of these young people, some of whom enter our contest year after year. Through their immersion into the study of King, they truly are helping achieve our goal of keeping the life and legacy of Dr. King alive. This year, we asked students to create posters, videos, and essays concerning the power of the vote. In doing so, several students equated the vote to freedom and revisited a quote by Dr. King from his 1967 presidential address to the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, entitled, Where Do We Go From Here? And I quote, as long as the mind is enslaved, the body can never be free. In that speech, Dr. King went on to call for a shift in the way we understand, define, and exercise power. He said, what is needed is a realization that power without love is reckless and abusive, and love without power is sentimental and anemic. Power at its best is love implementing the demands of justice, and justice at its best is power correcting everything that stands against love. With that in mind, approximately 500 New Jersey students entered our contest this year, and I'm pleased to salute our winners. Each student receives a small token of our appreciation, including this wonderful T-shirt created by our assistant graphic designer, Kirk Weber. They also receive cash prizes, including $50 for third place, $75 for second place, and $100 for first place in each category. Unfortunately for us, several of our student honorees are homesick today, but express their appreciation. The students are going to line up by category, and I will introduce each by name. Please hold your applause until we have announced all of the winners of each category. Presenting the poster contest honorees. Receiving honorable mention, Harrison Dunn Polite, fourth grade, Princeton Charter School. Brooke Ferenzi, sixth grade, Reddington Middle School. Hannah Hauschold, fifth grade, Stewart Country Day School. Jennifer Liu, a sixth grader at Stewart who could not join us today. Zara Mayotte, fifth grade, also of Stewart. Julia Rue, sixth grade, John Witherspoon Middle School. Raul Wadwa, fourth grade, Yardville Elementary School. Third prize is awarded to sixth grader Gavin Springer of Princeton Academy of the Sacred Heart. The second prize winner is Nicole Keim, sixth grade, Stewart. And our first prize winner is John Chin, Chinsia Ma, sixth grade, Chatham Middle School. Congratulations to you all.
And now, the 7th and 8th grade honorees in the essay contest. Receiving honorable mention, Sophia Hines, 8th grade, Crossroads South Middle School. Erica Humphrey, 8th grade, Melvin H. Kreps Middle School. Bethan Johnson, 7th grade, Stewart. Rachel Levitt, 7th grade, Kreps, who I don't think made it today. Karthina Rajandran, 8th grade, Community Middle School. Eric Trast, a 7th grader at Kreps who couldn't join us today. And Zora Schultz-Rouse, 8th grade, John Witherspoon School. The third prize winner is Justin Miles Heron, 8th grade, Glenfield Middle School. Second prize goes to Mackenzie Wisler, 8th grade of Stewart. And the first prize winner is Donald Nuzio, 8th grade, Princeton Academy. Congratulations. As we present the 9th and 10th grade essay contest honorees, please note that they are all from Stewart Country Day School, with one exception, who I will mention. Receiving honorable mention, 9th grader, Courtney Alexander. 9th grader, Abigail Bora. 9th grader, Raki Lala. And 10th grader, Prerna Sinha of Montgomery High School. The third prize winner is 10th grader, Sarah Rich. The second prize winner is ninth grader Elizabeth Henderson, and her sister Claire is accepting on her behalf. And the first prize winner is ninth grader Christina Cunio. What a strong showing for Stuart. Now to the 11th and 12th grade honorees in the essay contest. We have a few students who could not join us, so I'll start by mentioning them. Honorable mentions go to two seniors and a junior from Stewart, including Rebecca Martin, Nina Zemis, and Kelly Watkins. And with us today, we have junior Hannah Wilson of Stewart, who receives an honorable mention. Third prize goes to Kamara Edwards, a junior at Cherry Hill High School West. And while our second prize is awarded to Mary-Kate Dahlberg, a senior at Stewart, she could not join us today. Our first prize honoree is a young man who has won every MLK contest he has entered with us. We've really enjoyed getting to know him and his sister through their King work, and he is Christian Hienes, a senior at South Brunswick High School. Christian is, so, is homesick, so Sophia is here today with us, and she's glad to accept the award for him. Congratulations. We're very pleased that we continue to receive more and more entries in our video contest, which we began two years ago, and which covers grades 7 through 12, including PowerPoint presentations. Perhaps it's a coincidence, but all of the winners in this category are in eighth grade. We have three, three students who received honorable mention, and they are all from Stewart. They are Sarah Coswell, Sarah Horton, who could not join us today, and Madeline Smith. The third prize goes to Stephen Jack, 8th grade of Krebs. The second prize winner is Alyssa Dittmar of Stewart. 
And as it was last year, first prize is shared by twin sisters Isabel and Alexandra Kasdan of John Witherspoon. Congratulations. We're going to show you the Cosden's brief video directly after we offer yet another round of applause for all of our students, for their parents, teachers, and mentors. So let's have one more round of applause. Thank you. Let's roll the video. Is that free? Hey you, yeah you, why aren't you voting? Before you decide against venturing towards your polling place, consider the people who can't vote, like people being unreasonably discriminated against, or the people who have misfortune of living in a country governed by a dictatorship. Think about the people who fought for the right to vote. Unfortunately, in the past, not everyone was allowed to vote. This precious right was only granted to male, white, Christian landowners. People like the suffragettes in the early 20th century fought a difficult battle against citizens who believed the right to vote should only be given to men. This unfair underwent a serious transformation as America slowly loosened its grip on the strict old-fashioned society. Sadly, African Americans were unjustly denied their right to vote. It was prevalent for polling places to tax African Americans that were attempting to vote or have them read a paragraph or two before allowing them to enter. The social order at that time did not enable African Americans to be wealthy or educated. This, unfortunately, made it practically impossible for African Americans to vote. The well-known civil rights activist, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., became a prominent figure in improving America's voting policies. In addition to fighting for equal treatment of African Americans and whites, Dr. King wanted African Americans to be able to influence the government like whites had been doing for almost 200 years. You see, he realized that it wasn't fair that this group of citizens wasn't allowed to vote. You are not utilizing your right, which many people before you died to preserve. And by not taking advantage of your right to vote, you are dishonoring the memory of this noble figure in our country's history. Be fair to your heritage and be fair to yourself. Go and vote. You don't have to ask permission to vote before you go to the polls. You are allowed to make a difference. Why not do so? That was terrific. And that concludes our student awards presentation. We, we hope you all participate again next year.
Some time ago, when we started planning our next speaker, committee members asked people all over Princeton's campus who they wanted to hear today to be most inspired. Time and again, the answer was Reverend Dr. Charles G. Adams. Dr. Adams is one of the most highly respected African-American preachers in America today, and we're fortunate to have him with us. The son of Charles Nathaniel Adams and the late Clifton Gilchrist Adams, he was born December 13, 1936, in Detroit, Michigan. He was baptized by his granduncle, the late Gordon Blaine Hancock of Richmond, Virginia, and on that firm foundation, he has built a stellar career, most notably as senior pastor of Detroit's Hartford Memorial Baptist Church. An author, teacher, and grand orator, with no further ado, I'm honored to present the Reverend Dr. Charles Gilchrist Adams. Thank you very much. With such a gracious introduction and an abundant applause, I ought to quit while I'm ahead. It is good to be here, and I want you to know that introductions are safe as long as they are not inhaled. <clears throat> I want to speak to you a few minutes today about the dynamics of hope. You're very highly privileged to be in this place with such a marvelous and long history of achievement and activism. Very, very blessed we are to be in the presence of President Shirley Tillman and President Malvereen Hughes. You are being qualified from the youngest to the oldest to face the world with all of its many problems, difficulties, and challenges. This wonderful place is universally celebrated as a transformative frontier of challenge, courage, curiosity, creativity, compassion, community, and hope. Princeton does not shudder nor cringe before any problem of society. It does not run away from any battle for community. It does not surrender to any enemy of humanity. As recipients and participants in the essence and experience of this institution and this occasion, we are all challenged and charged to go into all the places of the world as leaders and not laggards, voices and not whispers, headlights and not taillights, active agents and not passive patients, achievers of excellence in all things, and instruments of peace with justice among all races, religions, and nations. We represent the hope, the hope that, that science will be our helper and not our destroyer. 
the hope that our vaunted atomic capacity will not take us over the precipice of existence. Prince Charles of England, speaking at the birthday of, an, of another college, said a good man is a nobler work than a good technologist. The aim of this university must not be simply to teach men to make things, but to produce people who are capable of assuming complete and moral responsibility over all the things they make. That is true. We are people of hope, and we must always nourish the capacity to work through every achievement of power, science, and success until we reach that level of moral responsibility which alone can sustain our lives, secure our successes, and save our world. Most people fall short of hope and settle for easy American optimism or the depressing fatalism, which is the inevitable fruit of the unavoidable failure of optimism. Hope is not a superficial attainment, but it is the diamond buried deep within the bosom of discipline, of hard work, persistence, and self-control. Just as faith is impossible without facts, joy inconceivable without pain, victory meaningless without a battle, life unavailable without death, freedom incomprehensible without limitations, love nothing without sacrifice. So hope is impossible, inconceivable, and inaccessible without long-term diligence and discipline, the will to resist optimism, persist in spite of pessimism, and insist above all discouragement that there is a solution to every problem, a way through every wilderness, and a hope that will not fail. There is an agonizing, elusive side of hope that renders it undesirable to those who, in the words of Frederick Douglass, want roses without rain, crops without plowing, and success without struggle. We prefer easy optimism to costly hope. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it, we want cheap religion rather than the pain and sacrifice of costly hope. Especially in these privileged United States are we attracted to notions of simplistic solutions and quick nostrums which promise automatic slam-duck success. Most of the world is not prepared like you for the long, hard struggle and sacrifice from hope to hope. That is why full democracy has not been realized. It is because the sacrifice is too great to make our nation truly one nation under God with liberty and justice for all.
That is why school desegregation has not been accomplished after over 50 years of half-hearted effort. The price is too high for those who are not disciplined and prepared to hope boldly and work relentlessly to achieve justice and equal, equal educational opportunity. That is why affirmative action has been maligned and swamped by affirmative reaction. The privileged are not willing to abridge themselves of their superfluities, as John Winthrop put it, to sustain our common life. The fortunate are not prepared to forego luxuries in order that the rest of the world can have necessities. Nobody seems willing to take less in order that others can have enough. So tuberculosis has not been wiped out, cancer has not been cured, AIDS has not been conquered, the ecological war has not been won, the energy problem has not been solved, unemployment and underemployment have not been eliminated, the high cost of living has not been contained, the arms race toward human extinction has not been arrested, the environment has not been protected, and justice has not been perfected because a nation spoiled by privilege is not sufficiently prepared to accept the discipline and diligence necessary to fulfill human rights and to solve human problems. Optimism is easier than hope because it basks in the realized eschatology of instant gratification. Hope is oriented toward the future of delayed eschatology and postponed gratification. Optimism is instant and immediate satisfaction. Hope is intelligent and committed diligence. Optimism demands everything now. Hope waits and works for necessary evolvements and painstaking developments. Most people are strung out on immediate instance. We want everything quick. We don't want to lose weight by exercising and dieting. We want to go to the hospital and let the surgeon slice the pounds away. We drink instant coffee, takes too long to brew. We eat instant potatoes, too much trouble to peel or boil or bake. We eat quickie foods because there's no time to stand over a hot stove. We want instant intelligence not the arduous development of the mind by thinking and reading, but the immediate titillation of the senses by television and computer. We want to push a button and punch some keys, stay in bed and know it all. Thus we are producing non-readers, non-writers, and non-thinkers. Are we totally incapable of the protracted pain and long-term effort that hope requires? To be sure, it is easier to settle for a smiling politics of happiness 
or a frowning politics of hate than to undertake the serious discipline of hope. There is something in us that prefers easy answers rather than difficult, complex, sacrificial solutions. How shall we both preserve economic freedom and distribute economic opportunity? The optimism of the left says it's simple. Do away with private ownership and collectivize the means of production. The optimism of the right says one need only follow supply-side economics. Only hope will resist both easy answers and persist through the cycles of good times and bad times to find that diamond point where capitalistic profitability and social responsibility converge and support each other. How shall we have a clean, healthy environment? The optimism of the right says it's easy. Just remove all environmental protections. The optimism of the left says public, reg public, regula pu public regulation alone is enough to solve the problem. Only authentic hope will strike the balance between personal discipline and public requirement. How shall we become a secure nation? The optimism of unlimited militarism says it's easy. Just increase military spending, pile up armaments and strategic defenses, while sharply reducing appropriations for health, education, welfare, job training, and every other social domestic initiative, and, American, and America will be a secure nation. To the contrary, notwithstanding that we shall be filled with hungry, frustrated, unschooled, unemployed, diseased, and desperate people. The optimism of pacifism says, disarm unilaterally and renounce all violence. To the contrary, notwithstanding that we live in a hostile world where life is opposed to life and the disarmament of one nation does not dissuade the violence and greed of other nations. Only an indomitable hope will find that elusive point where an honorable people are realistic enough to protect themselves against violence and yet good enough to work diligently and indefatigably for peace with justice for all. How shall we solve the problem of terrorism in the world? The optimism of the right says, become like the terrorists to terrorists. Bomb the terrorists, attack them, hate them, damn them, invade Iraq, bomb Pakistan, murder the innocents, and we will defeat terrorism to the contrary notwithstanding that we shall only encourage the proliferation, intensification, and spread of terrorism. We are less secure today than before the beginning of the war against Iraq. The optimism of the left says, ignore terrorism and pretend that it does not exist. 
Only a stubborn hope will find the solution to terrorism, which will both treat its deep political and economic causes while it resolutely and responsibly takes action against its intolerable savagery. How shall we solve the problem of geopolitical tension and conflict? Conservative optimism says blame it all on the villains, evil empires, people we don't like, while we easily tolerate other instances of avoidable suffering, like human rights violations in Kuwait, China, and Australia. Liberal optimism says romanticize the villains and close your eyes to their oppressions of minorities and invasions of other countries and their suppressions of individual freedoms. Only objective hope will visualize the good and evil in both friends and foes and affirm goodness wherever it exists while opposing evil and inhumanity wherever and by whomever they are perpetrated. How shall we confront the shame that 30 million black Americans are still second-class citizens, still eliminated from consideration on the basis of color alone? There is an optimism found among blacks and some whites, some blacks and some whites, and that optimism says there's no problem of race in America anymore. The civil rights movement is over. Colin Powell is the immediate past Secretary of State, and Condoleezza Rice is the current Secretary of State. What more do you African Americans want? The optimism of the other side says that the problem of racism will go away when all the structures and prearrangements of racist presumption and prejudice have been dismantled and all the doors opportunity are open to all people. Only deathless hope will discern that the problem of racial oppression is both personal and structural, and that its solution will require the rearrangement of prearranged social and economic structures, the widening of the door of American opportunity with affirmative action, ramps of access for those who have become disabled by previous denial, the spiritual transformation of the oppressor and the dutiful discipline of the oppressed. The easy answers of American optimism are not working solutions to our problems. They are like the dope which stimulates and depresses and disappoints. They are not the hope that finds the way to truth and life. Optimism glosses over the depth of the human predicament, does not realize the cosmic dimensions of evil, minimizes and circumscribes the dimensions of tragedy. We live in a world that is plagued with problems which will not easily or quickly go away. There is a fatal flaw in us and in our generation which will not yield to quick fix solutions. We who are privileged and possess of an education from a school like this will do well to oppose any simple solution to any complex problem 
and thus condemn any easy optimism that does not face up to the depths of cruelty and savagery of which educated people and religious people are capable unless their education and their faith are motivated and enlisted and fulfilled in a great hope that is totally inclusive, fully committed to the preservation and enhancement of all human life. The hope that we represent is both within us and beyond us. W.H. Auden observed, nothing but a miracle can save us. We have tried the mass solipsism of humanism, but history and humanity can neither explain themselves, cleanse themselves, nor fulfill themselves. They presuppose a point of reference and a power of being beyond themselves. We have tried hedonism, but our preoccupation with enjoyment sours into boredom, and excessive pleasures leave us numb and empty. We have tried mere scientism and intellectualism, but two world wars, the Third Reich, South Africa before 94, have taught us that the most intelligent can become the most barbaric. The same Germany that gave the world Bach, Beethoven, Brahms, Immanuel Kant, Paul Tillich, and atomic energy also gave us Hitler, the Holocaust, and the almost permanent division of Germany and Europe. Right after World War I, Karl Barth, the father of crisis theology, noticed that just at the moment when the state thought that it had succeeded in making men out of wild animals, it found it necessary for national security to make wild animals out of men. Intelligence without integrity, said Rabelais, is the damnation of the soul, and he should have added, it is also the devastation of society. The culprits of Watergate and Koreagate, Iran Contragate and Halliburton Cheney Gate are not lacking in knowledge but in morals. We need a higher hope. We have tried democracy with its guaranteed freedoms, but something else is needed to go along with democracy to make it work. The liberation of the individual can mutate into the license to self-destruct. The freedom of speech can be perverted into evil speeches that comfort cruel men. The freedom of assembly can yield a Ku Klux Klan, a Nazi party, a lynch mob, or a self-styled religious right, which is really a religious wrong. The freedom of enterprise can irresponsibly poison the environment, destroy cities, compromise national purpose, sell sex and drugs to children, and kill the flower of the human race just to make more money. The freedom of religion can lead to the intolerance of the inquisitions, the cruelty of the holy wars, and the suicidal fanaticisms that are so evident today. Ideologies that are not servants and instruments of a deeper hope are always dangerous. The more pretentious they are, the more dangerous they become as they relativize the absolute and absolutize the relative. The right to vote can be abused to exalt contrived media images to the highest positions of power and responsibility.
In recent days, America and the world have been shocked into the realization that popular religious, popular political rhetoric and media spin are not sufficient to secure this nation or to save this world. When one experiences the inevitable failures of optimism, it is easy to sink into a, depression, a depressive, depressing pessimism of fatalism. The feeling that one is a sorry victim of blind inexorable forces and can do nothing to change the tragic turn of human events. Fatalism says there is no solution to the problems of our time, no way to arrest the arms race and prevent the annihilation of the human race, no way to harmonize free enterprise and social responsibility, no way to achieve a full employment economy all over the world, no way to keep factories from shutting down their labor-intensive operations all over the world, no way to keep steel mills going in every nation, no way to educate and liberate the people of the world, no way to feed the hungry, heal the sick, or rehabilitate offenders. Fatalism gives up the human struggle and throws the human race into the teeth of the trends of the time, believing that there is no metaphysical hope that undergirds all reality. An editor of the Detroit Metro Times echoes the fatalism of a fallen optimism when he writes, my name is Uni Despair, and I refuse to have a nice day because life is empty and existence is meaningless and people are helpless. And we can talk the talk and look the look, but inside we know that we're just another pair of arms flaying in a sea of humanity against the futility and meaninglessness of life. We defend ourselves by acting important and strutting like a gander in the barnyard but there is no cure for cancer and no cure for AIDS either, and there will be none in our lifetime. And there's no answer to the human dilemma and no deliverance from the human predicament and no formula for world peace and no means of achieving racial harmony and ethnic mutuality and congeniality. Life is a lie, a meaningless, aimless hoax. We are born often unwelcome as another mouth to feed, and we fight to get our fair share of the pie and do our best to pass on our genes as we are programmed to do, bury our elders and finally sick and withered in some hospital bed, tended by people who wish they were somewhere else, your inner workings slow down to a stop and you cease to exist for all eternity. Your body becomes a handful of dust and your pile of possessions are argued over your desk at work is taken over by someone else. Your place on the assembly line is already occupied, possibly by a robot. And the universe continues on as if you have never existed and you are soon forgotten, unquote. So we find ourselves on a seesaw between an optimism that fails and a fatalism that does not try to help us. Optimism says there is no sickness. Fatalism says there is no cure. Optimism says there is no death. Fatalism says there is no resurrection. Optimism says God is in heaven, all's right with the world. Fatalism says life is but a walking shadow 
a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage, and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Is there any way out of this vicious, manic-depressive cycle of optimism and fatalism? I make bold to suggest that you who are gathered here in honor of Martin Luther King, you are the open doors of hope into a system that seems closed, final, futile, and fatal. It is up to you and me to break the vicious cycle of nihilism and transform cyclical futility and fatalism into linear progress and destiny. You who are privileged to be in this wonderful university are today being called and challenged to go into all the world and stand and serve as living alternatives to ignorant optimism that blinds one and crippling fatalism that frees human initiative. You are here to prepare yourselves I am here to prepare myself to inherit the whole world with all of its problems. We must leave here and go into all the world and take the power of our mentality and the energy of our integrity, the efficiency of our technology and the fire of our spirit. Go to Lebanon and establish justice, humanity, unity and harmony. Go to UNESCO which has been dangerously undermined. Go to Geneva and find the formula for peace. Go to Sudan and stop the war. Go to South Africa and create economic development for 23, struggling, 23 million struggling people. Go to Ireland and stop the blood flow. Go to England and humanize the leadership. Go to Latin America and pull the tentacles of moral insensitivity and military madness from around the necks of the poor. Go to the cities of the United States, like my city, and reverse endemic unemployment, inadequate educational opportunities, substandard housing, absentee landlord desolation and blight, the lack of democratized health care, the systemic destruction of the family, unrelieved poverty, unmitigated despair. Go, go in the spirit of Martin Luther King Jr. and Princeton University. Solve the problems, find the solutions, meet the needs, turn night into day, despair into hope, the trampled down into the upward bound. Your presence here today can be your key to take the world, not to dominate it, but to deliver it, not to exploit it, but to enrich it. The past is yours, learn from it. The present is yours, fulfill it. The future is yours, preserve it. Knowledge is yours, use it. Cancer is yours, cure it. Racism is yours, end it. Injustice is yours, correct it. Sickness is yours, heal it. Ignorance is yours, banish it. The arms race is yours, freeze it. War is yours, stop it. Hope is yours, affirm it. People are yours, love them. America is yours, save it. The world is yours, serve it. The earth is yours, enhance it. The environment is yours, cleanse it. Death is yours, delay it. Life is yours, extend it. Truth is yours, know it. Victory is yours, claim it and share it universally.
Kale Vizeo, Hebrew poet and philosopher and prophet to the nations, tells this simple story. A man is on a boat. He's not alone, but he acts as if he were. And one night, without warning, he suddenly begins to cut a hole in the floor under his seat. The other people on the boat shout and shriek at him. What on earth are you doing? Have you gone mad? Do you want to sink us all? Are you trying to destroy us? Calmly, the man answers, I don't understand what you want. What I'm doing is none of your business. I paid my way. I'm not cutting under your seat. Leave me alone. What we must all realize and never forget is that we are all in the same boat. And wherever we sit, we are responsible for the health and viability of the whole boat and the whole voyage of the entire universe. Martin Luther King Jr. said, we're all tied together in a single bundle of destiny so that whatever happens to one person or group directly happens to all the rest of humanity indirectly. Let me expand upon that statement. Ignorance anywhere decreases understanding everywhere. Injustice anywhere distorts justice everywhere. War anywhere endangers peace everywhere. Sickness anywhere challenges health and wholeness everywhere. Poverty anywhere destroys security everywhere. Unemployment anywhere weakens the economy everywhere. Fear anywhere frustrates hope everywhere. Hate anywhere attacks wholeness everywhere. Bigotry anywhere poisons fairness everywhere. Violence anywhere diminishes life everywhere. But when the spirit of Martin Luther King Jr. prevails, and when we ourselves live and move in that spirit and according to that drumbeat, we will have a world that has truly been tilted from fear to hope and from war to peace. I am a prisoner of hope, and I thank God for the life of Martin Luther King, Jr. to congratulate all of our winners on this day. A word of thanks to President Tillman for your commitment to equity, to Dr. Hughes for your story of hope and promise, and to Dr. Adams for your passionate and powerful words about hope. This would, day would not be complete without thanking all of you for joining us. And to conclude our program, the Jazz Ensemble, ensemble will come and give us one last selection 
followed by an audio presentation of Dr. King. Thank you, and we look forward to seeing you again next year.
I would take my mental flight by Egypt. And I would watch God's children in their magnificent trek from the dark dungeons of Egypt through or rather across the Red Sea through the wilderness on toward the Promised Land. And in spite of its magnificence, I wouldn't stop there. I would move on by Greece and take my mind to Mount Olympus. And I would see Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, Euripides, and Aristophanes assemble around the Parthenon. And I would watch them around the Parthenon as they discussed the great and eternal issues of reality, but I wouldn't stop there. I would go on even to the great heyday of the Roman Empire. And I would see developments around there through various emperors and leaders. But I wouldn't stop there. I would even come up to the day of the Renaissance and get a quick picture of all that the Renaissance did for the cultural and aesthetic life of man, but I wouldn't stop there. I would even go by the way that the man for whom I'm named had his habitat. And I would watch Martin Luther as he tacked his 95 theses on the door at the church of Wittenberg, but I wouldn't stop there. I would come on up even to 1863 and watch a vacillating president by the name of Abraham Lincoln finally come to the conclusion that he had to sign the Emancipation Proclamation, but I wouldn't stop there. I would even come up to the early 30s and see a man grappling with the problems of the bankruptcy of his nation and come with an eloquent cry that we have nothing to fear but fear itself. But I wouldn't stop there. Strangely enough, I would turn to the Almighty and say, if you allow me to live just a few years in the second half of the 20th century, I will be happy. Now, that's a strange statement to make because the world is all messed up. The nation is sick. Trouble is in the land. Confusion all around. That's a strange statement. But I know somehow that 
Only when it is dark enough can you see the stars. And I see God working in this period of the 20th century in a way that men in some strange way are responding. Something is happening in our world. The masses of people are rising up and wherever they are assembled today, whether they are in Johannesburg, South Africa, Nairobi, Kenya, Accra, Ghana, New York City, Atlanta, Georgia, Jackson, Mississippi, or Memphis, Tennessee, the cry is always the same, we want to be free. Another reason that I'm happy to live in this period is that we have been forced to a point where we are going to have to grapple with the problems that men have been trying to grapple with through history, but the demands didn't force them to do it. Survival demands that we grapple with them. Men for years now have been talking about war and peace, but now no longer can they just talk about it. It is no longer the choice between violence and nonviolence in this world. It's nonviolence or non-existence. That is where we are today.